mean, even just like the discussion at the beginning before the movie, I just right now, for whatever reason, I feel like before the meeting and, and before we watched the movie, I just like wasted a lot of good podcast energy. The lesson, Will, is that we should commodify every single conversation. Everything is content. We should become the audio versions of like fucking Wet Movie and his crew where it's like, if the mic's not there, we might as well not exist. I couldn't agree more. And uh, before we get into this episode, I also just want to say that, you know, all the scenes that you hear in this podcast are true, are taken from life. If often they are shocking, it's because there are many shocking things in this world. And besides, the duty of the chronicler is not to sweeten the truth, but to report on it objectively. Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan. Here as always with... Ah, Luke Savage. Feeling a little uh, enervated, I have to say, by what we've just seen. But I hope to, uh, you know, uh, re- reclaim some of the energy I had before uh, before we started recording. Which, you know, we should have... Will and I should just record everything because we end up having these spontaneous, out-of-character conversations before, uh, before we start recording. And of course, once we start recording, I mean, all of this is scripted, as we've said before. So we just lose some of that spontaneity and authenticity. And in the case of a session like today just uh, you know i feel pretty tired well we're like the rat pack you know frank and dino were you know you thought they were having fun on stage but the real party happened you know off stage (laughs) over the crap tables and in various hotel rooms (laughs) it's exactly like that i mean you know uh people don't realize this and i mean you know again this is this is all part of the script so is this true is this not true i don't know but will and i are we're like actually mick and keith have been for the last like 40 years like like we have separate dressing rooms like we don't really talk to each other but you know what, what the enterprise is too big it's too big to fail we can't cancel it we can't get out of it one day we'll both publish like dueling autobiographies and snipe at each other yes you could say that he's the gualtiero Giacopetti to my paolo cavara you know a great <laughs> a great duo who created incredible work but who nevertheless ended in acrimony and perhaps this is the episode to do it because you know a podcast you know if you host it with another person it is it is a collaboration. It is a dance. It is a negotiation. And, you know, there are, there are ones for you. There are ones for me. There are ones for nobody. And, uh, and on this episode, I think it's fair to say that five years, six years, however long we've been doing this, worth of chips have been cashed. Because <laughs> I knew this movie is a big ask. And I thought Luke's really not going to like this one. It's hard on your conscience knowing you're going to put your friend and co-host through a very bad time. And, <laughs> you know, I just, and he did. And I, <laughs> and I have to live with that just as, you know, Gualtiero Giacopetti has to live with, you know, had to live with making that militia death squad stand on guard for about two hours while he got there to record the, the execution. It should be clear though, this is not a movie that you actually think is good and yeah. and and from my end I don't think this movie is a bad subject for the podcast in fact I actually think oddly it's it's an even more correct subject for the podcast an even more apt one than perhaps your your initial pitch for it in fact there were multiple pitches for it uh, before we I finally was, got I around to it I was flailing yeah. I was I was desperately trying to <laughs> yeah. you know you see you see it's like this it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. Like, if you look at it from this angle through this lens there's 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 so much in this in this weird movie from the 1960s which we will actually flesh out in a minute and explain what the hell we're talking about but there was so much that was applicable to this movie that we've talked about in completely different kinds of films or or cultural objects i mean this is you know we've talked about sort of the equal opportunity offender conceit 
which you find in a lot of sort of libertarian movies. Like, what was that stupid, like, college free speech movie? Was oh, it PCU. PCU, like that kind of bullshit. Had a lot of that. More broadly, it just, it's one of those movies which, like, if there's if there's a type of movie or cultural object that is at the spiritual center of this podcast, it is the movie which, you know, it could be about anything, politics, culture, religion, anything, uh, that contends to have a lot on its mind and actually has absolutely nothing to say. And boy, does this movie can tend to have a lot on its mind without having anything to say. Hurry, hurry, hurry! They're just in time, friends, to see the most sensational, the most colossal attraction ever witnessed by the human eye. Mondo Kale number one and Mondo Kale number two. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Freak out! See the living dead! Stuff the goose until it explodes! Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is it! This is a rich text, and uh, I mean, I, I I agree that it's it's a bad movie. It's a bad object. Uh, I do have a poster for it up in my apartment, so clearly I have a complicated relationship with this film. It's called Mondo Kane, and it was released in 1962, and I kind of pitched it initially as, a few weeks ago we did an episode on the Quebecois documentary essay film, 24 Hours or More, which was part of this wave of interesting films from all around the world at the time, left-wing movies that were really pushing the form, mingling documentary and fiction and agitprop, and trying to create a revolutionary sort of cinema, Jean-Luc Godard being the most famous practitioner of, of this mindset. And Mondo Kane from 1962, which is a few years before those movies, I thought of it when watching 24 Hours or More, because I feel like it's like, the evil cousin, or it's like a, a like a cursed funhouse mirror version of it, or some of the tendencies it represents. And we wouldn't be talking about this movie if it wasn't enormously influential and it wasn't taken very seriously at the time it came out. The briefest pitch you can do about this movie is that it is the first shockumentary. It is the first of a wave of movies that proliferated throughout the 1960s and you could argue continues in some form to this day of bizarre rituals from around the world. Strange, shocking, gross-out rituals and practices and weird, ugly, and unpleasant stuff. And, you know, because it's the early 1960s, because censorship in the film industry is still very much a going concern, um, it, it kind of gussies up a lot of titillating or uh, sensationalistic imagery in the pretense of either art or education. This is sort of like the artsy version of, like, the uh, movie that Robert De Niro takes Sybil Shepard to in Taxi Driver, where, you know, it's like, New York in the 70s, as I understand it, well, you're more up on this sort of thing than I am, but, like, as I understand it, the explanation for that where it's like this gross film that like she just walks out of is is that like you couldn't screen pornography but if you screen something that was called like a medical documentary then you could screen it well one of the most infamous examples was in the 1940s there was a movie called mom and dad which it was not a movie that played in any of the theaters that had deals with the hollywood studios but it would play in independent theaters and the producer of that movie took it all around the country made $40 million on it over the course of like 10 years. And it was a movie about what they once called venereal disease Mm. and also unplanned pregnancy, Mm. you know, teenage pregnancy. And it was a movie that had images in it of certain parts of the anatomy riddled with um, unpleasant ailments. 
it also had footage of the actual birth of a baby. And this movie made, again, $40 million in like 1940s dollars. And that's because, you know, uh, John Waters talks about it a lot. And he, and he would always say that the straight men in the audience just wanted to see nudity by any means. Uh, they would be titillated by this image of the birth of a baby. Now, I've seen Mom and Dad, and I don't actually think that was the case. What I do think it was, was um, sex was such a repressed subject that anything that dealt in it, Anything that dealt in that forbidden thing was just a release valve. It wasn't necessarily a movie that titillated, but it was it was dealing in it. And then in the 1950s and 60s, as various court cases continued to redefine what obscenity meant, it would be like, well, nudism. <laughs> yeah, you, you, this nudism example you told me about when we were watching Mondo Kane. This is pretty amazing. Yeah, uh, nudism per se, because it is a lifestyle practiced by people, was not obscene. So depicting it is not obscene. Therefore, you got in the late 50s, early 60s, 500 movies about nudist camps. <laughs> and that that was up until... That's what activist yeah, judges get you, folks. <laughs> up until hardcore pornography started to proliferate in the early 1970s, it was a series of decisions like that. Now, this movie, Mondo Kane, um, it's got breasts. Uh, it's got a lot of sexual material in it in that kind of like National Geographic way. You know? This film, honestly, I could not think of another example of a film we've talked about on this podcast or watched that emanates the particular kind of pretension that this movie has. It is just radiating this kind of smug insistence on its own self-importance when really it is the same uh, stupid conceit repeated over and over again and which is alternatively used to show you images that are disgusting and disturbing or which are just kind of like extremely soft core stuff that would have been, yeah, titillating in like 1963 where it's like, oh, here's, the, you know, what's the scene where there's a bunch of uh, people on a beach and they're like practicing CPR on totally. each other and like that's like that's the level of <laughs> that's the level of a lot of it as you have probably noticed hunting men is a sport which is practiced the world over perhaps the women here practice it how can we say more sportingly in the open air and bare-breasted but that's the only difference actually even in our western hunting grounds on the french riviera abounding with wildlife trapping the local male is practiced in the open air and bare-breasted too now, we will come to what the conceit of the movie is in a minute, but I think there's probably a little more uh, setup that's warranted here. Well, the title of the film, Mondo Cane, translates to A Dog's Life, and it was made by Gualciero Giacopetti, Paolo Cavara, and Franco Prosperi. Giacopetti and Prosperi continued to make movies like this for the next decade. I think Giacopetti is the really key figure. He was a figure of considerable celebrity in Italy, a rather notorious figure. He was a very controversial photojournalist. I believe he was involved in left-wing causes earlier in his career. He was in the Italian resistance to Benito Mussolini. He started a sort of, well, a, like a liberal magazine that was apparently shut down because he ran racy photos of Sofia Loren in it. But he was also like a, an incredible creep, just a monster in real life. He was notorious because he impregnated a girl who was 13. There were numerous instances reported of just his very unsavory private life, was behind the wheel in a drunk driving accident that killed a girlfriend of his. Very notorious and controversial figure. Much of this still not widely known outside of Italy. And he very much cultivated an image of a sort of like swinging, jet-setting, uh, Roman Polanski-ish public figure. 
And over the years, he also cultivated an image as a sort of, um, well, well, a sadist, for want of a better word. I mean, maybe I'll get into later some of the movies he made after this. But this movie... Which sound worse, uh, it has th- to be said. I mean... You got off easy with this movie. <laughs> this is the, without a doubt, his most watchable film. <laughs> and and uh, you know, I haven't obviously haven't seen what he made after this, but this is easily the most unpleasant thing that we've ever had to watch for this podcast. <laughs> this movie was again taken very seriously at the time because I think there was no precedent for it. There was simply nothing like this. It played in competition at the 1962 Cannes Film Festival. It had an Academy Award nomination for be- for Best Original Song. Uh, it made millions of dollars in the United States and all over the world. It was taken seriously by many critics. I have a, a review here by Bosley Crowther in the New York Times who writes, Senor Jacopetti's color cameras are voracious and frank in what they see, emphasizing grotesqueness in close-ups and being supported by a brilliant musical score and a witty English commentary that reflects the ironic attitude. Oh yeah, I love the witty English commentary. I thought it was great. Life magazine did a spread about this film. Uh, Pauline Kael, to her immense credit, uh, gave it a very negative review. Oh, thank God. She said, The Italian documentary maker Gualtiero Giacopetti and his associates are actually documentary fakers. They set out to demonstrate how uncivilized the world is and then fake the proofs. Uh, The grossness of the picture works to the advantage of the filmmakers since it seems almost naive to attack it. This movie was so successful, though, that it launched a whole cycle of Mondo movies, most of them uh, very much faked. There were American movies like Mondo Bizarro, Mondo Freudo. They had titles like that where, you know, they were just made by like cheap jack American producers who would like show you atrocities and bizarre rituals from around the world. They'll show you like, oh, this is a slave trade in the Middle East. But, you know, it was faked. It was shot at Griffith Park with a bunch of slumming American actors. But that was all in the future. When this movie first premiered, people just didn't know what to make of it. And given what's on screen and the attitudes expressed, I mean, they should have been able to see through it. But it's a movie that flatters a lot of sort of uh, Western chauvinist upper middle class conceptions. And it's also, I should say, um, it has a certain uh, (laughs) sheer cinematic power to some of its images. (laughs) Like Jacopetti and Prosperi, awful as they were, were um, (laughs) extraordinarily talented image makers. So if one were to make an aesthetic case for the movie, one could do it. It's interesting to think what this movie, and by the way, we will get into what the hell this movie we're talking about (laughs) is in a second. I feel like, you know, I feel like, you know, at some point we should probably address that. But it's interesting to think what this movie would have been like without the narration, because I think the narration to me really added to the just hideous pretension of it. I mean, this kind of faux ironic tone that's actually very smug, this kind of, I don't know, every sentence just kind of uh, riddled with this sort of fraudulent whimsy and lots of it basically just like indistinguishable from something you'd read in like a really racist like 19th century ethnography or something. Meanwhile, the whole movie, like the the conceit that I was talking about, the only thing, the the one weird trick this movie has <laughs> is just like here here's a bunch of uh, people uh, on an island in the Pacific, and you know this is a courtship ritual or something, and then it'll cut to like. I don't know, some men like watching some women walk down the street in New York or some women watching some men walk down 
down the street or something. And then, you know, the point of it and the movie just does this again and again. And the only variation is whether the images are sort of gesturing at something erotic or titillating or whether they're just like shocking and, you know, upsetting. There's various things involving animals, which is very unpleasant. By the way, don't watch this movie. <laughs> um Whatever else Will says about it, do not watch it. Well, we, we park company on that. I, I think I think uh, uh, I've 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 I, we don't actually park company on that. But uh, <laughs> if, you're, if you're a freak like me and you're interested in in looking under a rock and finding the horrible bugs underneath, check this movie out. <laughs> but the movie repeats this conceit again and again and again. The sort of pretentious veneer of the movie is ah, look at this. Isn't civ- civilization? It's it's such a land of contrasts. And let us all stroke our chins wisely as we, you know, gaze upon the vistas of, you know, human ecstasy and, and the ebbs of human suffering. There'll be like scenes of death at like a funeral home in Hong Kong. And then like two scenes later, you know, somewhere in California, it's like a graveyard for cars that are getting crushed. And then, you know, the narration will be like, on the other side of the world, a different kind of death abounds as the great chariots of modernity lie in robotic slumber. <laughs> you know, like just, just awful. Yeah, I, I wish that was the actual narration. I was just imagining Geraldine Chaplin walking around that junkyard, making some ironic point like the one you just did. And that- and from there, it cuts to one of these like cubed cars, like, you know, put it in one of those things that like crushes cars. And then it's like, oh, here it is in a gallery in, you know, France. One of the great halls of fine art uh, selling for 50,000 francs or whatever. Which, is, which by the way, I, I just want to say it's such bullshit. I mean, you could so easily take shots at contemporary art, but like the idea that you can just take a crushed car and put it in a gallery and sell it like, sorry, Duchamp signed a urinal once. You can't do that trick over I, and over again. I don't understand how the movie can... To me, this is like the movie acting like the meme of just like the two Spider-Mans pointing at one another. <laughs> this movie is at least as pretentious, if not more pretentious, than, you know, this like cubed car at a French art gallery. We would like to correct ourselves. Not all cars come back to life as automobiles. In Paris, in one of the most important modern art galleries, we recognized the remains of an old Ford rebaptized with the suggestive title Spirit of the Car Body. Its price? Half a million francs. I would interpret the movie's central point. I agree there is one central point and, and not a lot else, but I would interpret it as who are the real savages? Question mark. It is a constant series of juxtaposing, as we said before, gross and unpleasant scenes from around the world, many of them faked, many of them staged, with images of Western decadence and foolishness to make an ironic point that aren't we all, at the end of the day, savages? Uh, no, but not you, not you, the audience member. Right, because the whole time the film's winking at you and it's saying, you're smart and you get this. Yeah, you're with us. So, I mean, <laughs> we'll talk about some of the segments. It, it kicks off. I'm sorry, I feel bad. I need to interject and say I feel bad because I feel like I really am refusing to give this film the time of day. You clearly see something interesting here that I do not. And yet we also clearly agree that it's a bad movie. So I don't actually quite know what's going on here. Well, maybe this is a safe space and you should feel free to make a case for it if you want to. I just happen to think it was deeply unpleasant, smug, pretentious, and awful. Um... (laughs) I don't think I can make a case for it. I can make a case for it as being an interesting object. 
Um, and I don't think we would disagree. No, I agree with that. Um, and I think a lot depends on just like what objects vibrate with you. What bad <laughs> objects vibrate with you? I'm sure there are plenty of bad objects that vibrate with you that don't hit me on the same frequency. This one, for a number of reasons, which I think I'll state and restate later on, kind of hits me in certain pleasure centers. It hits me in certain ways. Of what, like, you mean like those, uh, those shots of the uh, CPR being performed at the beach? Well, I mean, obviously, it was very nice of you to look the other way. I mean, you're, you're a red-blooded North American male. It was nice of you to look the other way while I just attended to business while that was happening. Um, before we get to that, though, I'll tell you folks about some of the vignettes that take place in the film. And we could be here all day. It's like 24 hours or more where that film opens with him saying, this is a film with 56 sequences. This one might have 56 sequences as well that are connected not through any sort of like left-wing project, or point of view, but connected through the idea of humanity. Isn't, isn't <laughs> no, it a dog's forget, forget a left-wing point of view. It's, it's just, there's, there's not even a coherent point of view. Oh, sure there is. It's, it's <laughs> isn't humanity bad? That's what it is. Aren't we all savages? That's the point of view. It's not an interesting point of view. So it opens with, I think, one of its weakest segments, frankly. Uh, we see a bunch of people in Italy doing a yearly ritual on the day that the great silent film star Rudolf Valentino died. Years later, 50 years after his death, people are still mourning the death of Valentino. But you know, there's a new Valentino, folks. There's a new heartthrob on the scene, and his name is Rosano Brasi. You're probably saying, who? Well, Rosano Brasi was, for a time, a leading man in Italian cinema. And we see scenes of, you know, obviously, very obviously staged scenes of, you know, Rosano Brasi attracting, like, Beatlemania attention. Yeah, he, go, he goes to New York, and then it's basically like an Axe commercial, where he's just, like, sitting there, and, for, like, for no apparent reason, just, 50 like... 50 women Yeah, it's just born. a tidal wave of, like, young women coming towards him. And this cuts to a tribe in New Guinea where the women, all of them topless, obviously, are, like, chasing men and dragging them to the bushes. And it's saying... Well, what's different here, folks? What's different? Right. So when I say the film has one conceit, uh, you know, I actually was not being hard enough on it before because I said it, I've said it, it's not coherent. I've said it's not interesting, but I would actually go further because like, you know, the whole movie is constantly sort of appealing, I think pretty fraudulently toward, it's making these like universalist gestures like, ah, are these scenes not the same that, that we are showing you? And then meanwhile, like the narration is just like, you know, it is like worthy of like, it is like something out of the 19th century, like the way that the narrator is like talking about these scenes that are filmed, you know, in, in Asia, Africa or Oceania or like the, the sequence in Hawaii, I think. Monstrous. Yeah, I mean, it's terrible. Yeah, well, if the thesis is, aren't we all savages? It's not saying that the people that we would call savages are actually human. It's saying the people we would call human are actually savages. Like, that's the racist point of view of the film. It's saying, sure, uh, we here in the West have created civilization, but at the end of the day, we have base impulses that make us no different than animals, which these people are. That's what the movie is saying. And it's very unpleasant to say that. It's an awful, it's an awful <laughs> worldview for a movie to have, uh, and the movie has it. <laughs> Again, we could be here all day uh, saying some of the things that happen in this movie. A lot of very unpleasant moments, you know. Uh, I've got a bunch of I got a bunch of notes that I'll just kind of read randomly. Uh, we see, of course, awful scenes of animal cruelty. Just you know, pigs and hogs being bludgeoned in other parts of the world. Uh, very real scenes, very terrible. And then it'll cut to a pet cemetery in the United States that wealthy pet owners patronize, including Jerry Lewis. By the way, we see the grave of his 
his dog, which gets to be in the like expensive pet cemetery. Right. His family's dog is buried there. And you see all these mourners, you know, old people crying at the graves of their dogs. And then you see some other dogs like peeing on the graves of other dogs. And the narrator makes some pithy point about Uh, the canine has no conception of the sublime meaning of the space. And isn't it and isn't it the canine (laughs) who really understands like the movie? The movie is laughing at these, you know, old people that they've hired to cry at the graves of dogs and it's like well i don't know is it so primitive to mourn the death of an animal is is it so ludicrous and then later the film shows us this turtle who's on a contaminated part of bikini atoll like struggling to crawl across the beach while the Ritz Ortolani score is just full power you know full tragedy the camera is looking at this poor creature and like how dare you pretend that you care about this turtle? <laughs> How dare you, after all the rest of this movie, say that you 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 care about this turtle's struggle when you've already you've already established that life means nothing. <laughs> you've already established that the, the deaths of animals should not be mourned. And yet, this film, in spite of everything you said, almost won the Palme d'Or. <laughs> well, it was nominated. It was there. I mean, when I talk about the beauty of the film, it has a certain like you know Lenny Riefenstahlian beauty to it. The scenes on the bikini atoll the scenes of the birds in the air the scenes on the ocean are are stunning i mean they're they're beautiful but you know putting that aside it is important to underline the fact that people didn't have a precedent for something like this like people were not used to seeing images like this the images in this movie are you know incredibly unpleasant Sometimes they're sort of like fumblingly erotic. And that volcanic mixture of all these taboo images sort of gussied up with rather muscular filmmaking and art film pretensions. You can imagine what a sort of cocktail that would have been for a lot of viewers in the early 60s. I mean, this was a movie that did very well among fans of exploitation movies, the sorts of people who would go to the nudist camp movies. But you can understand even why certain lesser members of the intelligentsia like Bosley Crowther at the New York Times would look at this and say, wow, this has power. This has impact. Like these were just images that people were not used to seeing. And so many of them rendered so photogenic through the power of Jacopetti's camera. To give you all a sense of uh, how unpleasant this movie is to watch, uh, there is one scene which in itself is not a- at all unpleasant to watch. It's just some kind of bit of performance art is, is being performed and there's like some stuff involving body paint and then there's a, a guy who apparently was this like well-known minimalist artist yeah, and performance e- artist. Eve Klein who fun fact he's in this movie he apparently suffered a heart attack while watching this movie at Cannes and then died a month later so uh, how about that? Yeah so this movie literally killed one of the people who appears in it. <laughs> <laughs> so again I'm not going to say every segment you know typical of the movie is you go to the streets of Hong Kong you know, that backwater borough, Hong Kong, you might have heard of it, where, you know, you see uh, meat served on the street, basically. It's a market. It's, it's a market. It's just a it's... street market. Exactly. And then it'll cut to, you know, an American restaurant where, you know, they're, they're serving ants and cockroaches and shit on a plate, and it's like fine dining. One segment that I do want to uh, hone in on, though, is one of the less obviously unpleasant scenes, but on the other hand, still one of the most unpleasant scenes, the Hawaii section of the film that comes near the end. So we're on a boat of tourists going to Hawaii. And I mean, this scene's like kind of boring. Not a lot happens in it, but just the, the gaze of it is very upsetting, I think. Yeah, I mean, basically, it's like the tourists go to Hawaii and then, you know, there's like big ceremony to greet them. And then they go to some kind of like, I don't know, summer camp for 
tourists where, you know, they learn what are ostensibly traditional dances or something. And I mean, you know, the narration is, is pretty bad in this section. So I guess like the... There's some problematic stuff. Yeah, folks. I would I would, I would, would say so. <laughs> but I think it's more just the fact that, it, you know, the film is really in, seems to be indulging along with the tourists in this kind of like noble savage trope or something. God, I hated this movie. Why did you make me watch this? I mean, there's that awful scene where you just see like a hundred well-fed American tourists being led to do like a hula dance by some, you know, probably minimum wage employee of some tourist company. And you see the looks on their faces where they're all just laughing. There's no respect for this culture. You can just imagine them going back to their homes being like, you know, they're so simple in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, they don't they don't have a lot, but they make they make so much more out of it than what we we do with what we have. And we can really learn a lesson <laughs> yeah. from that, can't we? Uh, one random note I want to put on the record is there's a scene, you know, involving I don't know death rituals in Asia or something when uh, the narrator says Buddha is a capricious god who either likes you or hates you. Now, I think that's very funny. That reminded me of that scene in A Fish Called Wanda when she when she says to him, uh, the central philosophy of Buddhism is not every man for himself. <laughs> for a movie that goes all around the world, there's not there's obviously not a lot of curiosity into the lives and beliefs of these people. You know what I find most interesting about this? I mean, I, frankly, I don't find the film interesting. I'm glad we talked about it, but only because I think it does underscore, uh, I don't know, a genuine difference of like philosophy and and taste between the two of us because I would never have watched this if it was not to make content and I was not being paid to do so. I would have been like Sybil Shepherd and Taxi Driver and been like, I'm just getting out of here. And then you would have been on the phone with me, like you would have been up at a payphone trying to get through to me, trying to get me back to finish watching the film. And, and then like the camera would have just panned away to a wall as you were forced to hang up. I think I'm probably more interested in like taboos than you are. Perhaps it's my Catholic upbringing. Perhaps <laughs> I'm, I, I vibrate more naturally to things that are perceived as transgressive well, I think you find taboos uh, and, yeah, transgression intrinsically interesting in a way that, that I don't. I, I think that's true. But I think you've got to admit that the story around this movie, the mere fact of it being a cultural phenomenon that's very is, interesting. is I, amazing. I and I do think I'm more interested in that than I am the text itself, mm -hmm. even though I, you know, I, I do think the, as I said, Riefenstahlian beauty of it kind of gets me at certain times. I mean, as... Uh, okay, folks, right there, uh, pause it, clip that, Will Sloan. <laughs> The Riefenstahlian beauty of it gets me at times. We're in the famous Pasadena Dog Cemetery, not far from Los Angeles. It's one of those windy, sunless days in which the immense California sky takes on some of the sad hues of morning. It's an ideal day for accompanying the late Fifi to his final resting place. Today, any mention of death seems appropriately serene. And this place is so pathetic that even we could shed a tear on these little tombs of illustrious creatures. Well, I do want to tell you just a little bit about where Jacopetti and Prosperi ended up, because I think you and the listeners will find this interesting. Again, this movie launched a whole trend. You know, by the time the fifth or sixth Mondo movie came out, uh, critics had kind of got wise to it. In fact, John Waters' first film is called Mondo Trasho. It wasn't a Mondo movie, but that was how potent the, the word Mondo was in the culture. It, the word Mondo came to mean exploitation. It came to mean taboo, even though it's just the Italian word for world. 
So Jack Capetti and Prosperi made a couple of other movies. They made a sequel to Mondo Kane. They made a movie called Women of the World. Even I don't find those movies interesting. But in 1966, they made a movie called Africa Audio. If there are like five movies on Earth that are like the most monstrous movies ever made, the most monstrous feature-length commercial films ever made, they've made two of them. And this is one of them. This is a movie that's about the decolonization of Africa and essentially makes the case that, you know, the white colonists uh, left too early and sort of left Africa to the militias and the poachers and the mercenaries. The worldview of the film is, is monstrous. You know, you were, you were mentioning would Mon- what would Mondo Kane be like without the narration? Something that would remain are the shock of the juxtapositions in the editing. He's constantly juxtaposing like Western civilization with you know, quote unquote, barbarism elsewhere in the world. And there's a, there's a lot of that in Africa audio. I mean, it's it's an extraordinarily unpleasant viewing experience that also has moments of like, I mean, it's like it's Werner Herzogian in the extraordinary ambition of its production. Um, but for evil, for evil, you know, it's like the filmmakers were in incredible danger when they made it. They captured unbelievable images. And, you know, it was particularly controversial because it depicted an execution, an actual execution of a Congolese rebel. And the filmmakers were brought up on murder charges for having allegedly helped arrange the execution. But they were acquitted, you know, on the grounds that they had documentation that they merely attended an execution that was already scheduled. So, I mean, when you're in the business of having to explain that distinction, you've probably done something very morally compromised. They were rightfully accused of racism for making this movie. And of course, they were like, what What do you mean? We're not racist. So then they made a movie that they allegedly thought would be like, well, this is the movie that's going to prove that we're not racist once and for all. And it was a film called Goodbye, Uncle Tom, which was a fake documentary, a mockumentary that sought to depict in unsparing detail what American slavery was actually like. And I won't tell you anything that happens in the film except to say that if you thought this movie was unpleasant, this movie is truly monstrous. But what is relevant is it was shot in Haiti under the dictatorship of Papa Doc Duvalier, who supported the production of the film, gave the filmmakers access to all of these Haitian extras for, you know, monstrously low wages. And they were made to participate in all sorts of horrible historical reenactments, traumatizing footage. And uh, that movie was greeted with a reception that was pretty much the opposite of Mondo Kane's. It was greeted as if an atrocity had been committed. And that more or less ended the Jacopetti Prosperi reign of terror on cinema. And their legacy can be felt to this day. It can be felt in uh, a movie like Faces of Death, which many of our listeners, I'm sure, will have heard of, if not seen. It was this collection of allegedly, you know, real death footage, most of it faked. But that became a real birthday party sleepover perennial in the 1980s among a certain kind of kid. Uh, You know, you can feel their legacy in like world's wildest police chases or any of those sorts of collections of footage. They're like wildest, most horrific atrocity footage, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, Jacopetti and Prosperi uh, still live today, and that is their monstrous evil legacy. And um, what can I say? I find that interesting. (laughs) Mondo Freudo will disgust you. It will shock you. It will excite you. Mundo Freudo explores the world of Sigmund Freud, a world of beauty and filth. 
I was interested in that point that you raised earlier about I find transgression and taboo interesting for its own sake and you don't necessarily. Uh, I'm not sure why I'm bringing this up again, because uh, you're not my therapist. Because, <laughs> you know, we were both kids once. We were both kids who, like, probably uh, saw the adult section at the back of the video store. You know, you never, you never like, carried any of that with you, that sort of, like, uh, fascination with taboo and transgression. I want to know that I'm not abnormal. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like you should be on a couch while we're having this conversation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's not that I don't necessarily find it interesting. I think there's I think there's an important qualifier here, which is that I I don't find it like inherently or intrinsically interesting, and I think you do. I mean, this has come up a few times when we've uh, discussed this type of topic. I'm forgetting the name now of the like what shock rocker or whatever that we talked oh, about. Oh, uh, El Duce. El Duce. I love him. <laughs> right. I mean, I, 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 similarly to watching this, I mean, you know, it's, a, you know, it's obviously a different kind of subject, but I feel like you were drawn to it for a similar reason you were drawn to this. And I think I found it similarly unpleasant. I actually think him, El Duce, who we did that episode about, who was this, yeah, he was a shock rocker, kind of like Gigi Allen, was not particularly talented, but would do heavy metal songs about very upsetting and transgressive subjects subject matter and he was a man who existed only to like go on uh, the donahue show and have donahue yell at him like Ooh. that was you know to, he existed only to be every conservative parents fear that their kid would end up mm. like this and i'm fascinated by i think him and by something like mondo kane as like examples of things that are willing to be totally transgressive for no good right <laughs> like for, right. Ju for just in his case just no point and i think in right. jack Capetti's case actual evil but here's the thing i mean you're drawn to other uh, other things, other films, other artists, you know, who actually have some project or who are good. I mean, you know, John Waters is an obvious example of that. And I like John Waters. I'm with you on that. One of my favorite things you ever wrote was about Roger Ebert's one-star reviews and what they got wrong, what they missed in these films that, you know, Ebert was, uh, you know, keen to dismiss as trash or whatever. I don't necessarily have a rejoinder to that, but I do think that it's, it's interesting that in the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, all those celebrated court decisions, one week week it was the immoral Mr. T's, the next week it was Lady Chatterley's lover or Lolita, and then the next week it was, you know, Deep Throat. Like, it all became this sort of soup. One week it was Howl, you know, one week it was Lenny Bruce, and one week it was some fucking piece of shit. And I think that's interesting. I think it's interesting that all of those like obscenity cases. Well, you find it interesting that some of them are hooked on actual art and some of them are hooked on just like actual schlock. And I think there's also like a vast spectrum. When you look at, I mean, my favorite subject in the whole world, Al Goldstein. <laughs> <laughs> when you look at Screw Magazine in the early 1970s, it's like, yeah, you know, it, it was bad, but there were good things in it, too. It's not cut and dried. It's not it's not easy. It's not easy to say what's art and what's trash. Those magazines are an incredible document of their milieu. Sometimes they have extraordinary writing in them. A, a lot of the worldview in them is very bad. A lot of what he did is very bad. And, you know, Howard Stern's, frankly, another great example. I mean, that's another guy who was a real First Amendment warrior. And I mean, I don't think you could defend every single thing or even a plurality of things he did on his show. You look at the Whack Pack. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. Can you defend it? On what grounds do you defend it? I'm, I'm, I guess I am very interested in like all the muck there. And yet I cannot get you interested in Alex Jones, no matter how hard I try. <laughs> More than the greatest love the world has known. 
This is the love I give to you alone More than the simple words I try to say I only live to love you more each day More than you'll ever know My arms long to hold you so My life will be in your keeping Waking, sleeping, laughing, weeping Longer than always is a long, long time But far beyond forever You're gonna be mine I know 